Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. Transcribed. Meet Gertrude Lawrence. Millions knew Gertrude Lawrence, the actress, before her untimely death. In the next hour, we'd like you to meet Gertrude Lawrence, the woman, seen through the eyes of her friends and family. At the moment, and I'll get out of the way so you can hear it, Gertrude is singing a song for the king and I. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I'm with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed, suddenly I'm bright and breezy. Because of all the beautiful and new producer of Gertrude's last musical show, The King and I. I knew her before she starred as Mrs. Anna, but never really well until we started to work in the play together. Before that, I was only one of a large and adoring public who followed her career from one triumph to another. A glamorous career, Gertrude climbed from nowhere to the very top. As an actress, she was a beloved figure to millions. But only a few knew her as the woman. In these fortunate few, she inspired deep affection. And of course, if you were a man and single and the right age, affection might easily turn to love. That's what happened to Richard Aldrich. He's a producer, too. Tall and lean, of New England Puritan stock. He managed a playhouse in Dennis, up in Cape Cod. Gertrude played there once, and Richard, who was reserved and taciturn and shy... Richard fell in love with her. They were married on a July 4th. And the next morning, Richard called his mother in Groton to tell her the news. That morning, when the telephone rang, I heard my mother... Barbara Aldrich, Richard's sister. I heard my mother say, You, you married Richard? And then she stopped, and I, I gasped myself. I didn't know he was going to be married. And then she said, But who was Gertrude Lawrence? I nearly fainted. Gertrude Lawrence... I guess I almost screamed at her. I said, oh, Mama, you must know Gertrude Lawrence. She is the most famous actress. Why, you stand in line to see her. Mama didn't say a word. She just looked as if someone had died. She said, 
How can Richard mix with such queer, unusual people, she said. An actress, she said. Well, you see, and Mama was brought up with the Pilgrim Code in mind, and she had her principles. She would never go against them. So an actress to her was, you know, something that you don't believe in. I used to write stories. I used to write them upstairs. And when people would come to call on us in Groton, and they'd ask for me, Mama would say, Barbara's upstairs taking a nap. She wouldn't tell them I was writing stories. She didn't think it was right. I guess we were a pretty stiff, frozen family. I mean, until Gertrude came into it. I mean, the town was the same way Groton was. I mean, if you've been away a year, and people that knew you since you were born would just say, how do you do? And they wouldn't say, I'm glad to see you. Well, anyway, Gertrude melted us all to pieces. She melted the town. She melted Mama. And she did a lot of things for us. She changed so many things. Mama was completely won over. Poor Gertrude. She said, I'm really sorry for her. She said, I sometimes think she must find us all so very, very dull. And she loved her, and she was worried about herself because she couldn't unbend like Gertrude. Oh, it was touching. My cup of tea. Just as she won over Mama, so Gertrude made friends with her neighbors up in Cape Cod. On Broadway, a blazing international star. At Cape Cod, a gardener and club woman. No charity needed to ask twice for her help. No cause was too small to adopt. To all who came within Gertrude's wide circle of friends, she was thoughtful and considerate. I remember an endearing thing about her that I will always hold close to my heart. Helen Hayes. My daughter, who was just then 17, was about to open at Richard Aldrich's Playhouse in Dennis, Massachusetts. And they were rehearsing the play up there. And I was playing in New York in a play over the summer and was unable, of course, to go up to rehearsals for Mary's only second role, I think, in the theater. Uh, in about the middle of the week, I got a wire from Gertrude saying, you and Charlie, that's my husband, Charlie MacArthur, you and Charlie have never visited Richard and me in our house up here in Cape Cod, and don't you think it's about time we correct that? And don't you think it would be a nice idea for you to come up and spend the weekend... Now, while Mary is rehearsing here. Well, anything unexpected and unplanned appeals to Charlie and me, so we jumped aboard a plane on a Sunday morning and went up. And Gertrude suggested that we wander over and see my daughter's dress rehearsal on Sunday night. She was to open, Mary was to open the next night uh, in the play. So on Sunday evening, we sat in the back of the darkened balcony, just Gertrude and me, and I watched, and I knew why Gertrude had been inspired to send that wire that particular time. Because Mary wasn't getting along so well in that role. She hadn't quite got on to it. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a little love scene, and Mary had never played a love scene before, and she was shy and awkward. And Gertrude had watched this at a few rehearsals and had sent for Mama to come up and uh, see if she could uh, lend a little aid. Gertrude and I never exchanged a word about it. I didn't turn and say, now I know why you sent for me, nor did she. Uh, we just knew. So we went back to Gertrude's house, that lovely house that she adored and worked over so hard. Gertrude and Mary and me. And Gertrude said, now I'm going to do what I like to do. I'm going out here and entertain these fellows. And took my husband and Richard, her husband, out onto the 
porch and left Mary and me in full control of the sitting room while we worked over Mary's part. This was Gertrude doing the thoughtful thing and the kind thing always as gracefully as ever it could be done. On one subject, Gertrude and Richard were poles apart. That was spending money. Grady Harris, Gertrude's close friend, remembers a party. The year before she married Richard Aldrich, she gave a surprise birthday party for me in the Persian room of the plaza. The late Eddie Juchin and Johnny Green played double piano. Paul Draper danced and G sang a medley of her songs with a magic more incandescent than all the candles on the birthday cake. As if this weren't enough, she had the table piled high with gifts of every description. To her conservative future groom, a book or a box of candy was quite adequate. When he received his bill for buying half the perfume counter at Saks Fifth Avenue, I was sure that Gertrude Lawrence would never become Mrs. A. Gertrude was lavishly generous. Early in her career in London, an American vaudevillian named Clay Smith had given her a helping hand. Years later, she learned that Smith was a charity case in an institution, blind and penniless. She set aside a fund for him, a monthly allowance, and she sent him packages. Richard suggested that some old woolen shirts of his might go into a package. Gertrude shook her head. Not used clothes, and not useful ones. Silk shirts from sulkers, she said. He will feel the smooth silk, and it will remind him of old times. She loved to give everything away. You couldn't stop her. Again, Helen Hayes. Uh, got so one was afraid to admire anything. She might be wearing a beautiful jewel, and you'd say, Oh, what a lovely thing. I never saw it before. And maybe when you got home from wherever you were, you'd find this wrapped up in a, in a Kleenex in your uh, purse where Gertrude had tucked it away because she was embarrassed about giving it to you. I remember she came out to our house in Nyack once for a weekend, and she had a lot of little beautiful... Uh, antique um, pill boxes and things with her. And I was looking at them beside her bed one uh, one morning and admired them. And when she left at the end of the weekend, there were the pill boxes tucked away, all wrapped up, because she knew if I saw them before she left the house, I'd thrust them back at her. You couldn't... Uh, you know, she was incorrigible in her generosity. She was the easiest touch in the world. Ben Friedley, the producer. Any hard luck story, however far-fetched, seemed to touch her heart, and the consequent handouts were large and overgenerous. Her gifts to the cast, to stage crew, and to her management at Christmas and anniversaries were really sometimes quite fabulous. What she made and what she earned seemed to be for the sole purpose of giving pleasure to others. She'd go into a shop. Constance Collier, the actress. And order several enormously expensive gifts. For her friends, and sometimes for her acquaintances. But she never gave you things that you needed. She gave you a luxury you never expected. A jeweled box, a sable stole. She'd send a dress to a chorus girl. She'd order someone to go to one of the most expensive dressmakers and get an outfit. Things she couldn't afford, but she liked to see the look on their faces. For it's bad for me, it's bad for me. This knowledge that you're going mad for me. I feel certain my friends would be glad. 
generosity to others and her own love of luxury added up to an extravagance that became legendary. At one point, her financial affairs became so scrambled that a thorough overhauling was indicated. She was prevailed upon to turn over all her economic problems to the law firm of Fanny and David Holtzman. They promptly put her on a budget. Ultimately, it worked out, but for a while, the big problem was how to deal with Gertrude's evasions. She would go on wild buying sprees charging all kinds of things at the stores and cautioning those near her, don't tell Miss Fanny or Mr. David. Gertrude's zest for spending may have stemmed from the poverty she had known as a child. Mary Margaret McBride. I'm going to let you listen to an interview that I did with Gertrude Lawrence almost ten years ago. I asked her about the way her family had to move from one place to another during her childhood. Yes, we were always on the go, depending on our finances, you know. We couldn't live in Army Street because we'd, we'd owed the rent. Well, then we packed up at night time and moved to Navy Street, <laughs> which was probably only a couple of streets away, but at least we did it while the landlord wasn't looking. That was called moonlight flitting. That was called a moonlight flit, yes. Was that really a term that was used? Oh, yes, that's a, that's a well-known expression. When you want to dodge the landlord, you do it at, at night when it's dark. And do you remember she, if you, if it wasn't a bad flit, then you kept the piano? Yes, if it was, if the, well, if, if we weren't hard up, we didn't have to move. But if, if we'd had hard times and the wind, the horses weren't coming in, in the right direction, in the right order, <laughs> well, then we had to move and back went the hired furniture and we moved with what, we, what belonged to us, as the pots and pans and probably a, a mattress. And then we'd go around the corner somewhere else and wait for fortune to smile on us again and then back would come the hired furniture <laughs> you remember the first song that you cut out of the newspaper oh you, it ain't it all printed. honey and it ain't all jam walking around the houses with a three-wheeled pram yes that's right <laughs> and, and then tell what happened uh, at brighton beach wasn't that where you sang yes i went uh, one of our very few good times my mother and father took me down to brighton which is a seaside, seashore resort in England. We went down there for a Sunday. It was a lovely, lovely, broiling hot day, and they had a, uh, an amateur competition on the beach there for children or anybody who wanted to get up and sing or something. And uh, so I naturally wanted to get up and do something, being a precocious child of about eight. And being a child, they said, oh, let her go on, let her go up there. She, she's all right, bless her heart. So up I got, and I sang... There was I waiting at the church, waiting at the church, waiting at the church. And they gave, I got a, a golden sovereign for it, which wasn't the prize, but the manager sort of gave it to me out of sympathy and, and uh, encouragement, I think. But that was the first money I ever earned. At a fairly tender age, Gertrude enrolled in a dancing school, Miss Italia Conti's Dancing School in London. There was another promising youngster there by the name of Noel Cowan, they became friends from the very beginning. Miss Conti's sister and her niece recalled the old school days. Noel and Gertie were very great friends. They used to say that I was a dragon 
I don't know that I felt like a dragon, but then, of course, uh, they were naughty children. All, all clever children are naughty. Gertie was very intelligent. Her, her readings were very good of anything new. Her diction improved a great deal. It hadn't been very good when he first started with her. I remember being taken into the dressing room of Gertrude Lawrence when she was appearing in London. And I remember how delighted she was to meet my aunt Italia Conte and reminisced with her for some time about um, the early days when she was at the school and uh, there was a piano in her dressing room and she struck some chords violently, discordantly, and she said, that is my first recollection of you. When I came into the studio, you struck these chords uh, in this ghastly way and said, that is what your voice is like, Gertie, but I am going to make you quite different. We used to give her lessons. We used to give her lessons in parts. She would study parts. She would study, well, naturally, Shakespeare, a few modern things, perhaps. But she was always wanting to work. She was a girl who had to work in order to live. She wasn't like a lot of young people nowadays who've got people to look after them. She had to work. In those days, one of the top impresarios of London's West End was Andre Charlot. Gertie was not yet 18 when we first met, and her salary then was about $15 a week. From the very start, I was impressed by her amazing versatility. The only drawback to her uncanny vitality was a tendency to get carried away by childish pranks, completely devoid of malice, mind you, but so embarrassing that on three separate occasions I was obliged to drop her from her cast. However, Beatrice Silly became seriously ill during the rehearsals of my review, and I engaged Gertie to replace her and was delighted to find that she had completely and permanently reformed. Of all the actresses it has been my lot to work with, I have never known one who could so quickly hit the bullseye during the early days of rehearsals. The right intonation, the right gesture, always seemed to come to her without the slightest effort. Her success in my New York review must live in the memory of many. In Limehouse, where yellow ladies dance and play. In Limehouse, you can hear those blues all day. And they seem all around like a long, long
The entire company went to New York. Be Lily. And we arrived on Christmas Eve. Terrible snowstorm, terribly cold. We didn't know where we were going to stay. And somebody suggested the Ambassador Hotel. Well, we thought that sounded all right, the Ambassador. So we went there, the three of us. Jack Buchanan, Gertrude and myself. In the morning, we called each other up and said, how much was your breakfast? And we all said about $25 each or something. So we got out of there quickly, but quickly. Oh, in New York, we had the most wonderful time. Everybody was so wonderful to us. We had parties every night. And we had a house in 54th Street, Gertrude and myself. And we entertained nearly every night. We had such people as Alec Wolcott, Mark Conley, Helen Hayes, Charlie MacArthur, Catherine Cornell, Jean Eagles, Bob Sherwood. Oh, I could go on and on and on. And Vincent Humans, he used to come there quite a lot. And we, we always had tea. It was a big thing, tea with us, of course. And that's what he composed in our um, house, Tea for Two. Gertrude's success in New York established her as an international star with devoted audiences on both sides of the Atlantic and friends in the most exalted ranks of society. Oh, Mother and I um, had a cottage on the Thames. Gertrude Lawrence. This was two or three years after I'd been in London. And um, the Prince of Wales was a great lover of the theatre. And my particular young gentleman friend at that time was his equerry, which is his glorified aide. And so that was the way I met the Prince of Wales. And this one night, we were all going back to my house. I was being driven home back to the country to my mother, and um, the Prince of Wales was with us. And so we stopped at his club and got a hamper of food and champagne and drove down to my house in the country, got Mother up out of bed, and didn't tell her who we had with us at all. And so she came down in her, in her curl papers and a wrapper, and we got the hamper out of the car and spread it on the dining room table under one of those awful hanging lamps with a bead shade, you know. And um, we all sat down and had a wonderful time, had supper, had some champagne, and we were talking and joking. All of a sudden, Mother looked across at me in a startled look shot across her face, but she'd suddenly heard the other boy who was with me address this other man as Sir. And uh, she knew that that meant royalty immediately. You either say Your Majesty or Sir. And uh, she shot this horrified look at me across the table, and then I, I went nodded at her and must say, Don't say anything, don't, don't give it away, you know. And uh, she didn't. She carried on absolutely beautifully until the end of supper. And then we got up and they went. And Mother and I followed them to the garden gate. And then she did a deep curtsy and said, Good night, Your Majesty. Now the Gertrude Lawrence legend was in the making. She appeared in George Gershwin's OK, in Noel Coward's Private Lives, and tonight at 8.30. In Susan and God and Skylark. As she went from triumph to triumph on the stage, she came to represent the essence of sophistication. Smart, gay, desirable, but elusive. She set fashions, became one of the best-dressed women in the world. 
conservative critics called her a goddess and unashamedly declared their love for her in public print. Then she starred in Lady in the Dark and deliberately smashed the legend with her singing of the low-down Jenny. There once was a girl named Jenny whose virtues were buried in many excepting that she was inclined always to make up her mind and Jenny points the moral with which we cannot quarrel as you will find Jenny made her mind up when she was three she herself was going to trim the Christmas tree Christmas Eve she lit the candles through the tapers away on Christmas Day. Jenny made her mind up when she was 12 that into foreign languages she would delve. But at 17 to Bathur it was quite a blow that in 27 languages she couldn't say no. Poor Jenny, bright as a penny, her equal would be hard to find. To Jenny I'm beholden, her heart was big and golden but she wouldn't make up her mind. Foreign languages, she couldn't say no. Jenny made her mind up at 22. To get herself a husband was the thing to do. So she got herself all dolled up in her satins and furs. She got herself a husband, but he wasn't hers. Jenny made her mind up at 39. She would take a trip to the Argentine. She was only on vacation, but the Latins agree. Jenny was the one who started the good neighbor policy. Poor Jenny, bright as a penny, a rich one would be hard to find. For passion doesn't vanish in Portuguese or Spanish, and she wouldn't make up her mind. She But gin and rum and whiskey play such funny tricks And Jenny kicked the bucket at 76 Jenny points the moral with which you cannot quarrel Makes a lot of common sense Jenny and her saga prove that you are gaga If you don't keep sitting on the fence Jenny and her story points the way to glory To a man and woman
three years after that, she said, Barbara, do you think that Gertrude looked at me? It seemed to me she looked right at me that afternoon we went to see Lady in the Dark. And I said, oh, yes, Mama, she did. She winked at you. And Mama said, well, that pleased me very much. She said, I've been thinking about it all these years. Poor Jenny, bright as a penny, a would be hard to find. Meet Gertrude Lawrence will continue after a brief pause for station identification. brought Gertrude to a new and larger arena of action and service. She threw herself unsparingly into a dozen war activities, and then she made two hazardous tours to entertain the men of the fighting front. One to England and the continent, one to the South Pacific. The actress, Jessie Matthews, once Gertrude's understudy. We were all taking off from Normandy, and I suddenly walked into a room full of army officers and Suddenly, Gertie turns round in uniform. We rushed across to each other, and I can't think what it was I said, but I know she roared with laughter with that lovely sense of humour, and she said, oh, my dear, it sounded just like a shallow opening. And then we met again on board the ship, when we never knew whether we'd get to the other side or not. It was all rather a nervous strain. And I remember Gertie's discipline then was so colossal because she sat down and opened a little case and started writing some letters. And I thought, well, there's lots of things I could do right now, but I'm quite certain I could never sit down and write a letter. When she toured England, entertaining troops... Winthrop Aldrich, ambassador to Britain. Her family was enlarged to include all who needed help. Gertrude Lawrence came home with a long list of people to whom she had sent food parcels. When the need grew beyond her own means she enlisted the aid of her friends. Those who were in the habit of sending flowers to her for opening nights were told, kindly omit the flowers and send the equivalent for food packages. Gertrude went, she left behind her a trail of memories. For her many friends, she still lives in the stories they tell about her. Gertrude Lawrence needed four pieces of special material. Johnny Green, the songwriter. For nightclub work that she was going to do, recording work, etc. And Miss Lawrence paid uh, Eddie Heyman and me $250 for the four songs. One was called Body and Soul. She went back to London taking the songs with her. And one night, she did a broadcast over BBC at dinner time. And on this broadcast was the one and only time that she ever sang Body and Soul. But dressing to go to work was the famous English band leader, Bert Ambrose, who heard the broadcast, called Gertie up at BBC, asked her what the name of the song was, Whose song was it? How could he get it? All the usual questions. And Gertie Lawrence gave him a copy of it. And he started playing it in London. Well, the rest is the, the luckiest story of my life. 
And the nicest part is that Gertie Lawrence retained only a small token interest in the song and made it possible for Eddie Heyman and me to reap the benefits. I'll never forget a day three summers ago when we were both in London together. Grady Harris. It was 4th of July, G's birthday, and celebrating the event, we attended the garden party at the American Embassy, where some thousand guests were already milling all over the lawn. G, contemplating the scene, turned to our host, Ambassador and Mrs. Lewis Douglas, and said, how sweet of you to give this birthday party for me. Then there was the time that she decided she might like to spend her vacation in Bermuda. She cabled her friend, Mrs. Alan McMartin, the former Margot Graham, and asked if she could lease her beautiful island home for a few weeks. Margot cabled back that the house was hers for $10,000, including the boat and boatman. Whereupon the irrepressible G cabled back, do you mean $10,000 or $1,000? If you mean $10,000, please send picture of the boatman. <laughs> Mr. Orridge, he wanted to go someplace, and of course that meant my taking him. Roosevelt, Gertrude's chauffeur. And, of course, she had already told me to take Angus Dog to the, what you'd call a dog beauty parlor for such thing. That's what I always refer to it. But Mr. Orridge had wanted to make a business call someplace, and uh, he wanted to use the car. And Miss Lawrence said, well, Roosevelt's going to be busy. And he said, well, you aren't going out now. He says, no, but he's going to take Angus someplace. He said, well, don't you think it would be much nicer if Angus... Walk some time, be good for him. She said, no, he doesn't like to walk. He likes to ride and sit up front and look out the window and look at the people. So she suggested to Mr. Orridge that uh, Mr. Orridge, that he should take a taxi and Angus and I would take the limousine as usual. And so Mr. Orridge just came down and looked at me and shook his head and says, better luck next time. <laughs> when she was starring in Susan and God, Dr. Alan Claxton of the Broadway Temple Church. The drama critics and the columnists, as well as the church-going public, engaged in frequent discussions concerning the convincing performance that she was giving on the stage. They also got into discussions about uh, Susan's conversations with God. It was at this same time that uh, the Oxford Group movement, headed by Dr. Frank Buckman, was sweeping the country with its emphasis on personal religion. Miss Gertrude Lawrence took a great interest in this uh, spiritual revival. And as a result of this, we invited her to uh, come to the Broadway Temple Methodist Church and make a statement concerning her faith and her basic philosophy of life. Uh, she accepted our invitation in such a gracious manner that, well, we decided to let Miss Lawrence deliver the sermon at a special Sunday evening service. In fact, we arranged a service. Uh, the appearance of celebrities at uh, Broadway Temple, it's not unusual. But I have to say that the arrival of Gertrude Lawrence made this occasion distinctly unusual. I remember as uh, we walked up the aisle of the church together to the pulpit, I felt that she came not so much as a preacher, though she was going to preach, but with the grace and poise and charm that made her such an outstanding actress. We felt a, a sense of modesty about her. She, she had a sincerity that put me and the congregation in a very receptive and open-hearted frame of mind. In, in her sermon, she told us of her firm reliance upon divine assistance in her work as well as in her private life. As I reconstruct her standing there now with the 
the beauty and charm of her personality, uh, no one could doubt that what she was saying was what she felt. Our dressing rooms at Susan and God faced the Imperial Theater. Leonard Lyons, the columnist. And one afternoon, when Gertie saw the line of people across the street of the Imperial, she opened her window and blew a long fish horn and shouted, This way, folks, matinee of Susan and God. Right this way, folks, and get your tickets. She told me of the night she was doing a show with Doug Fairbanks, and a crowd of autograph hunters waited outside the stage door to get Fairbanks' autograph. A woman who saw Gertie leave asked for her autograph, and Gertie signed. An onlooker read the signature and said, Gertrude Lawrence, is she an actress? I don't know for sure, said the woman, but it's very nice writing. They didn't know for sure, but that was long ago. Yes, she was an actress. You've heard Gertrude sing in her very personal way. Now let's listen to her act in Jean Cocteau's The Human Voice. It's a story told entirely on the telephone. Here in the closing scenes, a woman of fading charms is bidding goodbye to her departing lover. as usual. And then I suddenly realized the truth. What's the use of pretending? Yes. No. No. If only we'd seen one another in the meantime. But like this on the telephone. What's finished is finished. No. Don't worry. One doesn't kill oneself but I get the strength to think of a lie, my beloved. Yes, there are times when a lie is useful, even kind. Like now, for example. If you were to tell me a lie to make this parting easier. I didn't say that you were lying. I said if you were to tell me a lie and I found it out. If, for example, you were not at home and you told me you were... No, no, my darling, listen. Let me say what I want to. I believe you. I was not trying to say I didn't believe you. Why are you so angry? Yes, you are. Your voice is angry. I simply said that if out of sheer kindness of heart you would lie to me and I realized it, then I would only feel all the more tenderness for you. Hello? Hello? You would have lied to me and I realized it. Then I would only feel all the more tenderness for you. Of course. <laughs> oh, you're mad. Oh, darling, I know that it's got to be like this. But it's terrible. No, I should never have the courage. I wouldn't even know how to buy a revolver. Imagining it, we're close together. And then suddenly there's a chasm, an abyss, a whole city between us. 
you're going to be in Marseille the day after tomorrow, then I would like, then I would wish, I would like you not to stay in the same hotel where we always stayed. You're not angry with me. You see, what I don't have to think about won't exist for me. Or at least only vaguely and indistinctly. So that it won't hurt so much. You understand? Thank you. Thank you. You're kind. I love you so much. Gertrude was a disciplined worker, a tireless worker in the preparation of a new play. When we produced The King and I, there were no such thing as hours, no such thing as fatigue. I believe that the king and I, Mrs. Anna, was the greatest role that she ever played. And I believe she did more for this play than any other play she was ever in. Your servant, your servant. Indeed, I'm not your servant. Although you give me less than servant's pay, I'm a free and independent employee, employee. Because I'm a woman, you think like every woman, I have to be a slave or concubine. You conceited, self-indulgent, libertine, libertine. How I wish I'd told him that, right to his face. Libertine, and while we're on the subject, sire, there are certain goings-on around this place. That I wish to tell you I do not admire I do not like polygamy or even moderate bigamy I realize that in your eyes this clearly makes a prigamy But I am from a civilized land called Wales Where men like you are kept in county jail In your pursuit of pleasure you have mistresses who treasure you They have no ken of other men beside whom they can measure you A flock of sheep and you the only ram 
No wonder you're the wonder of Siam. I'm really rather glad I didn't say that with all the women there and the children. The children, the children, I'll not forget the children. No matter where I go, I'll always see those little faces looking up at me. Your Majesty. Shall I tell you what I think of you? You're spoiled. You're a conscientious worker, but you're spoiled. Giving credit where it's due. There is much I like in you. But it's also very true that you're spoiled. Everybody's always bowing to the king. Everybody has to grovel to the king. By your Buddha, you are blessed. By your ladies, you're correct. But the one who loves you best is the king. All that bowing and kowtowing to remind you of your royalty, I find a most disgusting exhibition. I wouldn't ask a Siamese cat to demonstrate his loyalty by taking that ridiculous position. How would you like it if you were a man playing the part of a toad, crawling around on your elbows and knees, eating the dust in the road? Toads! Toads! All of your people are toads! Yes, Your Majesty, no, Your Majesty, tell us how low to go, Your Majesty, make some more decrees, Your Majesty, don't let us up of our knees, Your Majesty, give us a kick if you please, Your Majesty, give us a kick if you would, Your Majesty. Oh! Oh, that was good, Your Majesty. Up in Boston, while she was giving a performance every night, we asked her to learn a new song, which we decided to put into the show there. It was called Getting to Know You. She loved it when we played it for her. She rehearsed it, and the first night that she sang it, it was obvious that this was something very important to the play because she caught the spirit of love for these little Siamese children. It's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought that if you become a teacher, by your pupils you'll be taught. As a teacher I've been learning, and forgive me if I boast, that I've now become an expert on the subject I like most. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, getting to hope you like me, getting to know you, putting it my way, but nice 
Gertrude followed the heaviest of schedules. Although the king and I required eight strenuous performances a week, she found time to teach a class in acting at Columbia University and to carry on many other activities. Only occasionally did she take a holiday. One such occasion was the reunion of Richard's class at Harvard. We were delighted to see Dick and his wife at the Harvard reunion. Stanley Marcus of Dallas. It was a pretty gay affair with lots of memories and lots of looking back. The wives put on a skit of their own. Fleur Coles was in charge and on the committee were Francesca Lodge, my wife, and Mrs. A. It was a review and Mrs. A was part of the chorus line. She had as good a time as everybody did watching her. Well, the review ended and then a clamor went up for Mrs. A to sing a song. She did. She sang a lot of them. The orchestra struck up a tune, and Mrs. A sang not one song, but an hour full of songs. It was really wonderful. At the end of that hour, the entire reunion class broke out into a cheer. That doesn't happen very often, you know. A long Harvard cheer, loud and strong, for Mrs. Aldridge. She was thrilled, though she looked pale and tired. But I do know she was thrilled. She did look pale and tired, and it wasn't entirely the result of that evening's merriment. Don't do too much, the doctors warned Gertrude, but there was nothing specifically that they banned. And that was all the excuse she needed for carrying on exactly as before. A lot of people think of people in show business as an easy task. Again, Roosevelt. But uh, I, too, had felt that way until I'd seen the way she'd gone through. She worked very hard, exceedingly hard. She'd get in the back seat of the car sometimes, and most times she liked to ride up front with me. But uh, I'd pick her up, and she just would flop down in the back seat of the car, and uh, once or twice she would cry, and I'd say to her, what's wrong? She would say, well, she just didn't feel good. The strain was becoming more and more noticeable, and uh, she'd had some time off, and she had returned back to the theater, which was a matinee. And uh, after the matinee, I took her to the hospital. Regretful to all, she never came out. From the pages of his book, which he has called Gertrude Lawrence as Mrs. A, Richard Aldrich reads the passage that, for him, comes nearest to capturing the woman who was his wife. It wasn't exactly her beauty in the conventional sense. Gertrude had something far more arresting and more unforgettable than beauty. A vitality, a zest for life that brought a glow to all who stood in her presence. Nor was it just a theatrical gift. It was the essence of her whole being. The word that comes closest to it is radiance. Left the sky 
we still be together with our arms about each other? And shall you be my new romance? On the clear understanding that this kind of thing can happen, shall we dance? Shall we dance? Shall we dance? In Meet Gertrude Lawrence, your narrator was Oscar Hammerstein. And you heard transcribed the voices of Helen Hayes, Beatrice Lilly, Winthrop Aldrich, Leonard Lyons, Johnny Green, and others. The book, Gertrude Lawrence as Mrs. A, was published by Greystone Press. Meet Gertrude Lawrence was an NBC News production by Bill Weinstein. Hear the NBC Travel Bureau tonight on the NBC Radio Network. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.